Hello, this is Dr. Dan Guerra coming to you from Authentic Biochemistry Studios in the Inland Pacific Northwest. Today is the 30th of January, 2020. I'm going to break away a little bit from my arc of discussion on autoimmune diseases because of the coronavirus outbreak. I promised to my audience that I would make a discussion of it from the Authentic Biochemistry Studios and from the perspective of the depth that we normally do, which means going into the primary literature, examining the virus itself, looking at its molecular organization, its mode of transmission, its pathogenicity, and also some of the treatments that have been put out there. I'm also going to give you a small history of the MERS and SARS uh, coronaviruses, which were precursors to the current one. Before we get started on that, I just want to make a little a plug for our podcast. I'm in the middle of a campaign to try to get funding um, from the grassroots level. And you can go to my Facebook site. And my Facebook is, uh, of course, www.facebook.com slash Danguera00. Danguera is D-A-N-G-U-E-R-R-A. And there's a funding a uh, button you can push on there. You can see it right on the front page of the Facebook. And you can help us so that we can deliver to you authentic biochemistry on a much more frequent basis. I'd like to do it every day, 25 minutes, Monday through Friday, that is, with maybe special occasions on the weekend. Um, and that's what we'd like to get ready to do so that we can provide you with a lot more detailed uh, podcasts and, uh, than what you get from other sources. Uh, so please go there, please donate, push the donate button and donate whatever you can. It's greatly appreciated. I don't normally make a pitch like that because uh, I've been doing this for free now for uh, quite a while, over a year and a half, I think. And of course, I do have my normal companies, which uh, we use as consulting um, platforms for various biomedical purposes. But I'd also like to be able to get some funding for the podcast. And that's what I'm asking for. So let's get started. Okay, so we're going to talk about novel coronavirus infective pneumonia. The acronym for that uh, is NCIP. So I want you to understand that's what I'm going to be referring to it from now on as. Now, <clears throat> I want to, first of all, remind you that there is a relationship of the current novel coronavirus infective pneumonia, NCIP, and previous epidemics. Coronaviruses, or C small o Vs, are enveloped positive sense RNA viruses. Of course, they're characterized by this club-like spikes that project from their surface. Now, because of that, under a microscope, they can look like the sun's corona, like in an eclipse. That's why they're called coronaviruses. They have an unusually large RNA genome, and their replication strategies in the cytosol. Uh, these coronaviruses themselves can cause enteritis in cows and pigs and an upper respiratory tract infection in humans, but also in domesticated fowls, such as chickens. They can transmit potentially generating lethal human respiratory infections directly from animals to humans. In the recent past, the outbreaks of the highly pathogenic severe acute respiratory syndrome coronavirus, known as SARS-CoV, and the Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome Coronavirus, or MERS, have been recognized as epidemiological agents with a close association to NCIP, 
making the current outbreak, of course, one that we want to monitor. So I'll leave you some background. It's a paper published in Methods of Molecular Biology in 2015, late in that year. The volume is 2082, and the pages are 1 to 23. It's a published paper. Let's get into it. Coronaviruses are the largest group of viruses belonging to the Nidovirales order, and that includes the Coronaviridae and two other families. So the Coronaviridae comprise one of two subfamilies of the Coronaviridae family, with the other being the Toroviridae. They, again, as I mentioned, they're enveloped, non-segmented, positive sense RNA with one of the largest identified RNA genomes known for viruses. It's 30 kilo base genome. So it's pretty big for a virus. Highly conserved genomic organization, including a replicase gene, which is very large, preceding two other structural and accessory gene um, components. Expression of many of the non-structural genes by ribosomal frame, ribosomal frame shifting. So that's common in viruses. Several unique or unusual enzymatic activities are encoded with this large replicase transcriptase polyprotein and indeed expression of downstream genes by the synthesis of three prime from the RNA, nested subgenomic messenger RNAs is how the name is derived from those uh, particularly, particularly nested mRNAs. So that NIDO Right? I told you these are all in the order Nidovirales, N-I-D-O, is Latin for nest. The virions themselves for all these viruses are spherical, diameter is about 125 nanometer, club-shaped spike projections, as I said, emanate from the surface of the virion itself. The spikes are a defining feature of that virion, and they give them, again, the appearance of sort of a solar corona during eclipse. Then the envelope of the virion is the nucleocapsid, which are helically symmetrical. Coronavirus particles contain four main structural proteins. I want you to recall these. They're the spike S protein, membrane M, envelope E, and nucleocapsid N, all of which are encoded by the three prime end of the viral genome. The S protein, which ends up being about 150 kilodalton uh, protein, actually utilizes an N-terminal sequence to gain access to the endoplasmic reticulum of the host. Heavily N-linked glycosylated, so it's a glycosylated polypeptide. Homotrimers of that virus-encoded S-spike protein make up the distinctive spike structure of the surface of the virus. And so you have this trimeric S-glycoprotein and, and it's uh, in a with, uh, specific protein class known as class one fusion proteins. And they uh, mediate all those kinds of proteins in that class, mediate attachment to the host surface. So the S protein receptor interaction is the primary determinant for how they uh, select host or the coronaviruses. And they infect host species. Also, they govern tissue tropism of the virus. So the S proteins do two things. Select the host and do tissue tropism specifically. They utilize peptidases as their cellular receptor. Interesting. Many of the alpha coronaviruses use actually aminopeptidase N or APN, that, that host protein as a receptor. For example, SARS and another um, coronavirus called uh, COV-NL63 use the angiotensin-converting enzyme 2, ACE2, that's of course a protease, as a receptor. 
They also, some of the coronaviruses is also use DPP-4, which is uh, recognized as very important in um, tumor biology, as well as in certain metabolic diseases. And I talked about those in the past. I won't mention anything more than that right now. But the receptor dipeptidyopeptidase 4, DPP-4, which is obviously a peptidase, also allows uh, coronaviruses entry to the human cell. Now, following receptor binding, the virus has to next gain access to the host cell cytosol, and that's accomplished generally by an acid-dependent pH shift, proteolytic cleavage of the S protein by the enzyme known as cathepsin, okay, in, in endosomes. Viral RNA synthesis follows the translation and assembly of the viral replicase complex where the RNA synthesis produces both a genomic and, of course, a subgenomic RNA. That subgenomic RNA is basically serves as the messenger RNA for all those structural accessory genes, now turned proteins, which, was, of course, reside downstream from the replicase polyprotein itself. Viral structural proteins, S, E, and M, then, are translated in a cytosol, the host, inserted into the ER, and subsequently glycosylated as they move along the secretory pathway of the, what's called the ER Golgi Intermediate Compartment, or the ERGIC, where viral genomes encapsulated by the N protein, nucleocapsid protein, bud into the membranes of the ERGIC, and all they contain various viral structural proteins forming the mature virion, which then is shed. Coronaviruses cause a large variety of diseases in animals, their ability to cause severe disease in livestock and companion animals such as pigs, cows, chickens, uh, those are, of course, our livestock, but also the companion animals, dogs and cats, uh, like one in particular known as the transmissible gastroenteritis virus, or TGEV, and the porcine, this, of course, is in hogs, epidemic diarrhea virus, or PEDV, can cause morbidity and, indeed, death. Porcine hemagglutinating encephalomyelitis virus, or the PHEV, another coronavirus, mostly leads to enteric infection, but has the ability to infect the nervous system, thus causing encephalitis, vomiting, and wasting in pigs. The feline enteric coronavirus, or FCOV, causes a mild or asymptomatic infection of domestic cats, our, our lovely friends, the cats, but during persistent infection, and sometimes mutation, it can transform the virus into a highly virulent strain known as the feline infectious peritonitis virus, or FIPV. That leads to the development of a lethal disease called feline infectious peritonitis, or FIP. And there's similarities to a human disease known as sarcoidosis. Sarcoidosis is a human disease, all right, in which inflammation occurs in the lymph nodes, also, though, in the lungs, the liver, the eye, skin, and or in other tissues. So, sarcoidosis, right, in which FIPV is a mimic in cats, is a macrophage tropic disease and cause aberrant cytokine and chemokine expression and release, and also lymphocytic depletion uh, induced by that, probably via apoptosis, something we've been talking about in authentic biochemistry, and in the Vera of Medvidia lectures I just presented. And that was also lethal disease. So sarcoidosis then, enlarged lymph nodes, scarring and granulomas are made, and the skin is the presentations you get from sarcoidosis. You get uh, rashes, you get a lupus hypopernia effect, 
you get erythemia nodosum, you get skin lesions on the back, subcutaneous nodules at the eye, you get dry eyes and blurry vision, lymph nodes that said enlargement, lungs you get a hacking cough and sometimes coughing up blood. Uh, at the heart, you can get all kinds of cardiovascular complications. The liver and spleen, you get enlargement, enlargement, excuse me. So that's hepatosplenal mega, uh, uh, mega, mega uh, increase in size, right? And also in the joints, you get pain, arthritis, and swelling of the knee, right? So that's hepatosplenal megaly. Sorry, that was the term I was trying to remember. All right. So that cause of sarcoidosis is unknown, okay? So that's kind of interesting. What is known is that when a person has it, so in other words, you don't need the etiologic agent there when you get it. It's kind of like a pro-inflammatory disease, yeah, or autoimmune disease. Indeed, that's what it is, something I've been talking about in my lectures just recently. So you get tiny clumps of abnormal tissue. Those are, that's what granulomas are. They form in certain organs of the body, and granulomas are basically clusters of immune cells, and therefore they can generate a cytokine storm. Disease can affect almost any organ, as I said, but it's very common in the human lung. Doctors think that having certain genes make it very likely for a person to develop sarcoidosis. So there you go with a genetic predisposition. Things that may trigger the disease include infections, uh-huh, for common bacteria or viruses. Contact with dust or uh, sometimes chemicals can also trigger sarcoidosis. These are more common in African-Americans and of scan people of Scandinavian heritage. And women tend to be a little bit more susceptible to the disease than men. The disease often begins between ages 20 and 40, and sarcoidosis is rare in young children, thank God. A person with a close blood relative who has sarcoidosis is nearly five times as likely to develop the condition. So definitely there is a genetic predisposition. Okay, I told you all about sarcoidosis because I'm telling you that it is a mimic to the feline coronavirus. I'm not telling you the current coronavirus causes sarcoidosis. I brought it up only to give you the full understanding of how inflammatory diseases, and this virus causes an inflammation of the lungs, uh, can be correlated, how they turn on the production of pro-inflammatory cytokines, dysregulate T and lymph uh, B lymphocyte uh, trafficking and metabolism, and also alter the innate immune response. Right, things we've been talking about for the last nine lectures in authentic biochemistry and med uh, video lecture. Now, transmission of sarcoidosis, excuse me, transmission of the coronaviruses. Likely, it's a closely related virus that we're seeing now, the NCIP, and it circulates amongst what are known as wet animal markets. That means animals that have been butchered, but also animals that are alive and they're sold to the market, like in this province in China where this current coronavirus seems to have come from. Uh, if you have these animal markets that work repetitively and frequently every year, that's where you can get a likely virus infection being generated in that environ. So there's a series of factors that facilitate its spread into a larger population, first of the animals, and then ultimately into humans. Transmission of SARS, for example, is relatively inefficient when it was studied. Is only spread through direct contact with infected individuals after the onset of the illness. Thus, the outbreak was largely contained. This is now the human disease within households and healthcare settings, as we probably remember, except in a few cases of super spreading events 
where one particular individual is able to infect multiple contacts due to an enhanced development of a very high viral burden. Uh, and then often the ability to aerosolize that virus. So we've heard about this current coronavirus might be aerosolized. As a result of the relatively inefficient transmission of SARS, however, still a very inefficient transmission, the outbreak was controllable through common practices like quarantine. Only a small number of SARS cases occurred after the outbreak was controlled in June of 20, 2003. Excuse me. SARS primarily infects epithelial cells within the lung, so it's a respiratory disease. The virus is capable of entering macrophages, like I told you that feline virus does, and dendritic cells, like the feline virus and like the porcine virus. But those kinds of infections usually are abortive. Despite that, the infection of those cell types, <laughs> macrophages and dendritic cells, remember those are innate immune response cells, could be important in inducing the pro-inflammatory cytokines that ultimately do contribute to the inflammatory disease. So cytokines and chemokines are produced by those cell types, macrophages and dendritic cells, of course, but also epithelial cells will make it once they're infected. And elevate then, then that elevates those pro-inflammatory cytokines in the serum. Um, and indeed, that's how you get an overall SARS presentation in SARS-infected patients. So remember that there is a relationship between the novel coronavirus infective pneumonia, the one we're going to be talking about now, and those previous epidemics. That's SARS and MERS. And MERS is a Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome coronavirus. Okay, And those did cause problems. Now, here's some epidemiological history of those. SARS epidemic was controlled in 2003, flat out, full stop, but a novel human coronavirus emerged in 2012, this was several years later, and that was called the Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome, or MERS. MERS was linked to a highly pathogenic respiratory tract infection, so there was a mutation in the coronavirus with a reported mortality rate of up to 50%. That's really high. However, Perhaps because because of self-limitation and just common hospital procedures such as quarantine and maintaining body fluids, it never rose. MERS never rose to an epidemic proportion until another spike about two years later in April of 2014, where you had about 200 cases and about 40 deaths. And you had the potentiation of what appeared to be a human-to-human transmission. Now, that was contested even back then in 2014, and it was probable the increase was more because of precise identification of the virus combined with an increased human zoonic transmission due to the seasonal increase in humans working with birthing camels. It's believed what could have caused that spike in MERS. In the end, with MERS, 855 cases with 333 deaths giving you a case fatality rate, which I'm going to mention in a minute what that means, of 40%. That's really high. Now, those statistics were according to the European Center for Disease Prevention and Control. Now, case fatality rate, or CFR, is also sometimes called case fatality risk, sometimes called case fatality ratio, which is actually a better term, uh, or simply fatality rate, which is not a good term to use. Now, The case fatality rate is actually simply a proportion. It is not a rate. All it is is a proportion of deaths within a designated population of cases 
By that, I mean people with a medical condition that have been diagnosed over the course of the disease. So case fatality rate is a percent, and the percent is exactly this ratio. The number of deaths during a specified period of time after disease onset or diagnosis divided by total number of persons with a specified disease times 100. Not really a rate, okay? More like a proportion. All right. Now, some other terms of disease severity I want you to get a background for because we're going to do multiple lectures on this coronavirus before we're done. Probably at least two more, certainly one more. So, some other, case, some other terms I want you to understand from epidemiology. In contrast to prevalence of a disease, incidence is a measure of the occurrence of new cases of disease during a specific span of time. Those are two related measures that are used in this regard. Now, one of them is called incidence proportion or cumulative incidence, and the other is called incidence rate. Now, what I mean by these things, cumulative incidence or incidence proportion is that it is the probability of developing disease over a stated period of time. So as such, it's really an estimate of risk to contract the disease. So let me give you an example. You say that this doesn't have to be a disease that is transmissible from the etiologic agent, okay? Because this is just straight epidemiology terminology. Now, for example, if you say that people above 70 years of age have a 50% risk of contracting Alzheimer's disease, that is no epidemiological meaning. It, it has no boundary, okay? And that's because there is no temporal specifier. Just say over 70% risk. Well, over what time? You got it? So to interpret the risk, you have to specify the length of time. For example, 50% risk over the next five years, ages 70, 75, is quite different from the risk over the next 15 years, 70 to 85. In fact, the risk decreases after a while. So the depending on the population, interestingly, and there's a shift from male to female too. So the incidence proportion cumulative incidence has to specify a time signature. Okay, got that incidence proportion or the cumulative incidence has to specify time. Otherwise, it doesn't have any meaning in terms of epidemiology. Now, for example, the incidence proportion of neonatal mortality, is another example, neonatal mortality is the number of deaths divided by the number of births over the first 30 days. That's a real number. The incidence proportion is generally used in situations where the follow-up time is relatively short, like that 30-day in, in, uh, incidence for neonatal mortality for a given disorder. And there is relatively little loss to follow-up. So it's easy to monitor that disease spread. Otherwise, epidemiologists generally use the incidence rate, okay, where you have the time signature always put in place. Now, if you want to estimate incidence, you would assess a cohort of people who are truly at risk, meaning you would exclude anyone, now listen to this, who has already had the disease, viral or bacterial usually, or who couldn't develop it. Now, in the former... It could be a viral disease, obviously, like coronavirus. And then the latter, it could be anyone. So you have to exclude those from the cohort. Then the latter, it could be anyone who isn't near a transmission locus, okay? Geographical location, for example, or who couldn't contract it 
because they were not susceptible for some other reason, genetic predisposition. So you also can have immunoepigenetic mechanisms, which I've talked extensively about in my lectures, and an environmental type of blockade, which could be either endo-environmental or exo. And those, those terminology signatures, endo means something internal to the body, right? Like exclusion via blood-brain barrier. There's a, there's a good endo-environmental blockade. Or exo can have to do with, say, the dermis, the skin, right? Or can you have to do something to do with the environment you live in, urban versus rural, right? There's also the straightforward, sense-restrictive genetic predisposition. So you have immunoepigenetics, you have environment, and you have genetic components or predisposition. That makes coronavirus transmission and severity and incidence a diet event ontological paradigmatic disease. So how about some potential treatments? Well, unfortunately, they're limited. And they're limited because lots of viruses function this way. They're limited. Let me go through this quickly. First of all, self-limitation of the infection itself often takes care of the problem. You might not even need a diagnosis or a treatment because the disease runs its course and it stops. Self-limiting. However, doesn't mean identification is important. Identification will help limit outbreaks. So using some kind of real-time reverse transcriptase, because it's an RNA, PCR has become the method of choice for diagnosis of the human coronaviruses as multiplex real-time RT-PCR assays are being developed and are being used right now uh, in the United States and worldwide, including in China. There are no specific antiviral therapeutics but I know about treatment for the human coronaviruses, but inter uh, interferons, which are generated by innate immune cells, are only partially effective against the coronavirus. And you can use interferon stimulants or interferon directly as some antivirals, but they're very, very limited on their eff efficacy. Um, there may be suitable antiviral targets, and we can get into those later lectures, and those include things like viral proteases or, or indeed host proteases because they're receptors, polymerases like the polymerase for the uh, coronavirus, and even the entry proteins like the spike protein. So vaccines have only been approved for a few of these viruses, the IBB, the TGEV, and the canine coronavirus. But those vaccines are, always, uh, are not always used because of novel pathogenic coronaviruses that arise because of a recombination of circulating strains in and out of animals, right? Vaccines for the vet pathogens, such as the PEDV we talked about, can be useful in such cases where spread of disease to a new location could lead to a severe loss of vet animals. And so they do that sometimes. Perhaps live attenuated vi vi vaccines might be the way to go. Live attenuated viral vaccines might be the way to go. They be probably the most efficacious in targeting all the coronaviruses because they're lives. So you're going to have multiple epitopic valency, right? However, Vaccine development for coronaviruses is still challenging because, first of all, you get a mucosal infection, okay? Doesn't mean you ever really generate memory cell response, B or T cell memory responses. Also, natural infection doesn't always prevent the subsequent infection, not because of mucosal infection itself, but because of evading the lymphocytic stage, right? The acquired immune response. And I can get into that later. So vaccines have to either induce the lymphocytic-mediated immunity that would include T-resident memory cell production and, of course, plasma cells generating specific antibody. Plus, 
the propensity of the viruses recombine. And when they do that, they can then lose, of course, certain epitopes and render the vaccine that had been generated for those epitopes completely useless. So I want you to get that understanding already in place that there are there are motivations to get vaccines. We're going to talk about those later. For right now, I'm going to say Dr. Dan Guerra saying bye for now from Authentic Biochemistry. Listen up in the next day or two. I'm going to finish off on coronaviruses.